right, we're in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading in verse 25. Before we do that, just a little reminder, Jesus, He was constantly going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees who were a people who had bound grievous burdens on the people, trying to just make them do all these things to achieve righteousness. And Jesus called them out for their hypocrisy, because not only were the Pharisees not doing these things, but you don't obtain righteousness you know, through the works of the law. So He's constantly preaching this to people, and he and his main opposition was from the Pharisees. And in verse 25, after he's given all these examples of people that would have repented if they would have heard the truth, you know, he's kind of calling them out, and then he says, And at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's taught these people he's wanting to repent. He wants them to repent of these grievous burdens that Pharisees are putting on them, and he's wanting them to come to him. He's wanting that he's wanting to take away this load that they're carrying. And he says, you know, come unto me. He's telling them, let me bear this burden for you. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. You want to know what the opposite of working is? Resting. And let me tell you about salvation. It doesn't come from works. It comes from resting in Christ or believing on Christ. And then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we believe here at Liberty Baptist Church that salvation is very easy to obtain. Very easy. No works of the law. Faith in Jesus Christ. And what many people choose to call a belief like ours is easy believism. That's a term that we often hear. And so the title of my message today is what easy believism means to me. Right, that's specifically what I want to talk about, because in the theological world, whenever you disagree with someone in any area, we like to attach a negative label to them, right? We've got a name for pretty much everybody. And once we give somebody that label, okay, you know, because maybe they agree with one point of a Catholic or a Calvinist or whatever, and then we'll, we'll put those labels on them and hold them accountable for everything. Oh, you believe the Trinity? You probably worship Mary, too. No, no, you know, but, you know. People do that. It's super dishonest. It's a very bad thing to do. Or we will hold them accountable for you know our perception of that belief system. A lot of times we don't even really know that much about somebody else's belief system, but it looks really weird to us and we think all kinds of things. We've never actually talked to anybody that believes that. And then we do. We, we hold them accountable for everything we think about them. You know, And that's not right either. That's not fair. But what we do... We give that label, you know, and then it, it, it's our way of kind of throwing everything at somebody, including the kitchen sink, and just hoping that something sticks. It's, and if you have to win an argument that way, you're just probably wrong. And so the term easy believism, it's usually a derogatory term. Usually when people uh, say, well, they believe easy believism, that's a put down. They are, they're putting us down when they do that. And so when you say you believe in easy believism... People immediately assume you believe or practice many things that you don't and things that we don't, uh, you know, but there are 
many things when it comes to easy believism that I do agree with 100%. And, you know, I'm not against man-made labels because they do help identify you with certain beliefs, but it's always going to cause some things to get attached to you that you don't want attached to you. And, and so when, and when it comes to this subject, you know, when you say easy, you, know, you believe in easy believism, some people are just going to immediately assume some bad things that aren't true. And you know what? There's nothing you can do about that. You know, you just hope people give you the chance, hear you out. But I personally have no problem with the label of easy believism. And if somebody were to ask me if I believe that way, I'm probably just going to give them a simple yes. Or I might ask them, will you define that for me first? Since some people do define a little bit different. And then I'll tell them whether I believe that or not. Cause, and I'm not really preaching this message today to defend the term easy believism easy believism, even though I kind of like it because salvation is really easy and it's just from believing on Christ. So you can kind of see why I might be a little partial to that. Okay. Now, you know, we're going to talk about some things that are associated with it that none of us in here believe, but I'm still not going to run from it. I'm not going, you know, I don't have a problem with it, but certain doctrines that are often attacked when people are criticizing easy believism are ones that I do believe in very strongly. And so I do. I tend to get defensive when I hear people being critical about easy believism. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to, I want to read an article on this subject. I Googled it. I, I Googled easy believism just to see what people are saying out there, you know, what people think the definition is. I read the first three articles that came up. All of them were really bad. Okay. So uh, I'm not strong. Man. I thought about doing multiple ones, but I, I only have time for one. I'm going to read the one that came up first just to show you what people say about easy believism that's true and what they say that's false. And then explain again, you know, what that means, uh, what that means to me. And so, and I will say that one of the things that makes me want to embrace the term is the opposition to it. Because most of the people I see being critical towards it are people that I don't want to be identified with at all. And so I... I do like it. And so, and, and I also need to throw out a disclaimer here too, because we don't, we don't want to, or not everyone who is critical of easy believism, who is critical of that term is an unsaved heretic, even though many of them are. And I say that because some people do define it differently and are attack, you know, they're attacking some of these crazy overzealous soul winners that do one, two, three, repeat after me prayers with people and obviously we do not believe in that and you know most of these people who are saved and are critical towards it they always have their two or three experiences with the goofballs out there my question is how have you only had two or three experiences if you've been actually soulening for years because you do it for a long enough time you do it with enough people you're always going to have some of this stuff pop up and so when you're still telling your same example of the one time you saw somebody do it 20 years later, I don't think you've been soul with that many people. Because I've seen it a lot. You know, and sometimes it's people who, you know, are total goofballs. Sometimes it's people who just don't know any better. And, and you know, you have to help those people. You don't just go and write off soul winning, you know, because of somebody who just got a little too anxious to get somebody saved. And we did. We had a young man here. Um, Skyler, some of you will remember him, super zealous young kid. He was just, he was like 14, 15 years old, you know, great kid. I wish he'd have stayed around this area. He was living with his grandpa for a while. He wanted to go soul winning so bad. And I'm telling you, if I would have given, and he, I would take him with me 
And one time he finally got to saw me give somebody the full plan of salvation. He's like, all right, I'm ready now. And I was like, no, you're not. You know? and, and if I, if I would have let him, if I had just turned him loose, he, he would have come back telling us he got five people saved. I guarantee it. And he wouldn't have got one person saved. <laughs> but, you know, though, you know, the thing is, though, imagine using somebody like him as proof that, you know, we're not getting anybody saved out soul winning. You know, that's, that's absolutely wrong. And that's what people are doing many times. They had an experience with somebody like him, and then they just, they're critical towards everything. And obviously, I wouldn't have thought he got somebody saved with, you know, a method that he would have tried using at that point. But people, often what's happening is people are just attacking straw men. And so, again, some people, I think they're wrong. I think they need to be very, very careful when they're speaking against it. But just because you hear somebody say something negative about it, you know, it's, it's not a clear indication they're a heretic. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And so the danger of embracing a label or even outright rejecting a label often causes us to either make the mistake of defending it no matter what, because you do have the one, two, three, repeat after me people out there. They are out there, and then we're going to want to defend them when we probably shouldn't be defending them. If you're somebody who has rejected the label, then anytime you hear somebody preaching salvation is really easy, you kind of want to go against them. And we don't want to do that either. We need to learn to just, you know, be balanced in our thinking and normal. It shouldn't be hard, but it's hard today. Everybody just wants to pick a side and you just, you got to watch out for that. And so I said, I have heard people criticize us before that when I heard them, I actually agreed with pretty much everything they were saying. I just think they've gone too far in like acting like that's a bad term. But the things that they attacked, I would say, yeah, all of that's a problem. And I've seen all those things and we shouldn't do that. So uh, I want us to look at this article. It was on gotquestions.org. Uh, they pop up a lot if you search anything religious. And so let's, we're going to look at what they have to say and then go through the scriptures. We're just going to compare what this is saying to the scriptures. And this is not just some unique thing. This is... A lot of people, even Baptists, when they preach against easy believism, they use these same arguments. And so uh, he's, the article starts out, it says, easy believism is a somewhat derogatory term used by opponents of the view that one needs only to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. I remember a place in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, where a man said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, I don't know where we got that idea that one must only believe on Jesus in order to be saved. But I do remember a place in the Bible where it flat out said that. Now, you know, so uh, already this starts off and I just, I think we got something really wrong right here. My question is, what else must I do to be saved? You know, it'd be nice if the Bible had somebody actually ask that question in the Bible and then like an apostle give an answer. Oh, wait, that is there. It's in Acts chapter 16. What are we doing? We're telling people the same thing. We're still telling people the same thing. What must I do to be saved? It's very simple. So it says, from this, they conclude that those who hold to sola fide or faith alone teach that no corresponding uh, need exists for a committed life of Christian discipleship as proof of salvation. So, basically what they're saying is, you know, what our problem is we believe faith alone, sola fide, 
And we get from that idea that if a person is not, does not have a committed life to Christ, you know, that the, the, the committed life is the proof of salvation. We're saying they don't have to display that for us in order for us to believe that they're saved if they have faith. Well, again, we try to get our doctrine from the Bible. Okay? We try to always have clear scripture to go to. And I wish I had time to go to the scriptures that they reference and all this stuff. Uh, we just, for time's sake, we can't do it. But let me just show you a few things that just kind of shapes my thinking uh, from the Bible. In Romans 3.20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So again, somewhere I, I just read that and I think, I don't think we're going to prove anything by the deeds of the law. It's by faith that we're justified. Verse 27 of Romans 3 says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So, right there they've already said two things. That the Bible flat out says the opposite. They're like saying they believe this and they almost word what we believe exactly like what Paul wrote in the Bible. So, I mean, it's making me feel pretty good about the easy believism label when this is how they're representing it. You know, it's so far, so, so far they're representing it well. And yes, that is what we believe. And yes, we have scripture to back it up and we could keep going with examples of this. So, you know, and let me say this. Because they, they're about to show some scriptures here. And I've preached about this. I've talked a lot about this. You cannot prove anything to God by works. That's what Romans 3 just told us. But you cannot prove anything to man without works. Now, fortunately, you're not going to stand before man on judgment day. You're going to stand before God. So you better have faith. If you were going to stand before me and I was going to determine whether you're going to go into heaven or not, you better have some works. Fortunately, you're not standing before me, okay? But if you want to convince me you're a Christian, if I'm someone who is lost and you're trying to bring me to Christ and, and prove to me that you have something that anyone would even want, you know what? You need to have some works or you're not going to be effective. And that's why James 2, which they refer to, it says in verse 17, where, um, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So right there they'll say, See, that proves you have to have works to be saved. No, that's how you are going to be justified to man. That's how we prove to others. And more proof of that, in James 2.21, he gives an example of Abraham, who the Bible flat out tells us he got saved way back when God told him he was going to multiply his seed before he had any children and he believed God and he accounted him for righteousness. But years later, decades later, when he offered up his son Isaac on an altar, which is something you and I cannot even imagine having that kind of faith, you know what he did? He proved to the world that he had faith. He proved it to God decades before, but he proved it to man. And so he says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. So right here we have a statement that if according to their interpretation of it, we've got a direct contradiction in Romans when it says, if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? 
Abraham believed God and he accounted him for righteousness. So the thing is, those statements do not conflict with each other because of the fact they were talking about two different things. Paul was talking about when Abraham got saved and James is talking about when Abraham proved to others that he was somebody of faith. And so he brings up that instance where he offered up his son and it says in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness for he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And then it gives another example. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Now, folks, when Rahab the harlot worked with the spies when they, uh, during Joshua's day, how did she prove to them that she was on their side? How did she prove to them that she was actually trying to help them? She put that scarlet cord outside her window, didn't she? And by her works, they knew this woman's telling us the truth. This wasn't about her salvation. This is about her proving something that she said she believed because when she was talking to them, she's like, I believe in your God. Your God's the true God. You know, the people in here, they're all terrified. You know, but, and she went and she asked them because she wanted protection. So, uh, it's very important that we understand that because they, they bring these things up. So, in verse, uh, so let's, uh, back to the article. So, from this, they conclude that those who hold to sola fide, faith alone, teach that no corresponding need exists for a committed life of Christian discipleship of proof of salvation. However, that is not what sola fide means. True faith in Christ will always lead to a changed life. Now, this is what a lot of people do. They keep things vague on purpose. This is how I can control you. If I get you all too convinced you're saved and on your way to heaven, I mean, you might like, you know what? We don't need this church anymore. And you know what? You don't need this church in order to go to heaven. You do need it to be obedient to God and to fulfill God's will for your life. But to go to heaven, if you're saved, you don't need us anymore. But I hope you're shooting for more than that. Okay? But, you know, it would help me out if I could keep you wondering about your salvation. You know, all these people that leave the church, you got to wonder sometimes. you got to wonder. I, I wonder if I will see him in heaven. I'm sure about the rest of you that are staying faithful. These other people, though, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to be them. I wouldn't put any money on it. You know, but you know, that, that's awful, folks. But let me ask you this. What justifies a changed life? And that's what you need to ask people to say this. What justifies the changed life? What does the changed life look like? Somebody needs to explain to me what that is. Somebody needs to let me know how long it has to last before I can know that I'm saved or I can know somebody else is saved. Because it's crystal, crystal clear in the Bible, people can fall back into sin. We've been talk, we talked about that last Wednesday. People can fall back into sin. People can fall back into a life of carnality. We are constantly warned over and over again not to do that. Why would they need to do that if it's just automatic? We're saved. We're not going to do that. Okay? Because we can do that, folks. We can fall back into sin. doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but we can definitely fall back into sin. So another comment, so in the article goes on to say, another common usage of the term easy believism is in regards to those who believe they're saved because they pray to prayer with no real conviction of sin and no real faith in Christ. Praying a prayer is easy, thus the term easy believism. But there is no more to salvation than mouthing words. Okay? Now, there's a few things I, we have to address here. So first off, you know, is someone saved just because they prayed a prayer? 
Now, I don't know a soul owner on this planet who thinks that because they manipulated somebody into repeating a prayer that they're saved. We all teach you have to believe with your heart. We all know that. Obviously, you know, there's some people that probably just say it, say the prayer to get rid of you. But if that's what they're doing, how many of you think they really got saved? Now, here's the problem. We can't know that. Okay? We can't possibly know that. We don't know what's going on in someone's heart and mind. And you know what? You know, Kelly, she's old enough now where she can repeat anything we ask her to say. We could get her to say a prayer right now. But you know what? I don't think you get saved just from repeating a prayer. I believe you get saved from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's what I believe. And I don't know a soul on this planet that thinks that somebody actually gets saved just because you manipulate them into saying a prayer. I'm sure there's a goofball out there, but salvation isn't magic words. A prayer without faith is completely worthless. You say a prayer, you don't believe on Christ, you're not getting saved. And so, because faith is clearly the main thing in the easy believism camp, sometimes people say that you don't even need to say a prayer or call on the Lord for salvation. They'll start saying things like, well, just because you repeated a prayer, you know, or because you act like magic words save you. People will use those things all the time. But listen, it's, it's ridiculous to think that just because you got someone to say a prayer for something that they did not believe in, that they're saved. Did you know it would be ridiculous for you to believe that? You talk them into saying a prayer, they didn't believe it, they're saved. That's ridiculous. Okay? Do you know it's also ridiculous to think that someone who said a prayer, believing on Christ, is not saved? That is also ridiculous. Okay? Now, and you know what? It's also ridiculous to think that someone who claims to have never called on the Lord or asked for salvation is saved. That's also ridiculous. Okay? Now, you know, Romans 10.13 Here's what you got to understand. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is not a command. It's a promise. Okay. Let me say that again. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is not a command. It is a promise. Now, some people want to make, turn that into a work. You have to do this. You know, you've got to say it out loud. You've got to say it with your mouth. You know, a person with the oxygen tube can't get saved. You know, you know, you know they'll go to all these ridiculous extremes and stuff like that. Okay, that, that's absolutely nuts. But folks, the fact that God has promised that whoever calls on him will be saved, why would we tell anyone you don't have to say a prayer? Why would you tell anyone you don't have to call on the Lord? That's a work. Why would we tell somebody that? God promised that if they would call, they would be saved. And then you're going to say... You don't have to do that. Why would we ever tell somebody that? Okay, now obviously, you know, the robot theologians out there that want to turn this into, no, sound waves must proceed from your mouth. Your tongue must move. You must have words come out. At, you know, no, obviously it is. You're, we're calling on the Lord and how we do that can be expressed in many different ways. But I'm telling you, you're never going to convince me somebody who's never called on the Lord in one way or the other is not saved. All right? Some people, it probably looks something like sign language. I believe they got saved. And the Bible doesn't say with the hands man believeth unto righteousness. Or, or hands confession is made in salvation. Okay? But I believe, they, I, I do. And you know what? You can tell me I'm adding to the Bible all you want. I believe that. I believe with the hands confession can also be made. 
unto salvation. I'm convinced of that. So, uh, you know, that the mention of praying a prayer or without conviction of sin or real faith in Christ. Okay, this is something they also said. Now, obviously, if, if a person has no faith in Christ, they will not be saved. So then what do you mean by real faith in Christ? Okay. You know, uh, you know, how do I know when someone has enough faith? You know, it's, it, they treat us all like donkeys, and it's like they're carrying a carrot on a stick in front of us when it comes to our salvation. They always want us to think we're close to it and we're about to get it, but they're never going to let us get it until they decide we're ready. So they've convinced us that you know, we're going to be committed to them. But listen, conviction of sin. What, you know, what do you mean by conviction of sin? Because obviously a person does need to recognize they're a sinner, that Jesus had to die for those sins. You must admit guilt. I had somebody call me the other day who saw the plan of salvation after COVID land and was talking about how it made him feel bad and he was kind of mad at me for it. And I was like, well, you know, you're supposed to feel bad. You're on your way to hell if, if you're not saved. And he was just like, well, I want to get saved. And, I, and so I started going through the plan of salvation and I started telling him how he was a sinner. And he was like, I don't think I'm a sinner. He did not believe he was a sinner. He did not believe that he deserved to go to hell, but he wanted to get saved. I told him, I said, I can't help you. I said, until you realize you're a sinner, I said, you can tell me you believe in Jesus, but why did he die? Why the death if you aren't guilty? If he's not, you, you have to recognize these things. It's kind of like, well, he believed on Christ. Listen, remember when Paul got onto those who believed in a gospel without the resurrection? Okay, if a person does not believe they're guilty of sin and, or believe they're a sinner, they're basically believing a gospel without the crucifixion. And I'm sorry, you're, that's believing in vain. You're not getting saved if you don't believe in the crucifixion of Christ or that it was the blood atonement. I mean, these are fundamental to faith kind of things. So the thing is, though, when they say conviction of sin, typically what that means, how bad did you feel? Okay. How bad did you feel when you got saved? How many tears did you shed? Let me tell you, you know, boy, I, I was crying buckets when I got saved. You know, I, I was all tore to pieces. Some of y'all, you don't act like nothing. Some of y'all, I doubt you're even saved. Kind of like that woman at the well. She seemed like she got excited when Jesus gave her the gospel. She started telling me, hey, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Yeah, you know what? You don't have to cry. She did get excited, didn't she? She got excited. And think about it. Who goes and tells everybody, come talk to a guy who told everyone, or who told me everything I've ever done? You know, typically, you don't want them. <laughs> you don't want anybody to talk to that person. But folks... She got excited when she heard the gospel. I don't see any tears. I, I see her running and telling everybody about it. Did you know people react different? But then you'll have people out there because they don't feel you got enough conviction of sin that you're not even truly saved. That's, that's ridiculous. And the thing is, they don't even have, have any Bible that tells you you got to just have this deep conviction or that describes how that's supposed to be. They don't have it. The closest thing they have is John 16, 7, where it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. So he'll, he's going to convict you of your sin, folks. Of sin, because they believe not on me. That's what he tries to get you to do. He tries to get you believing on Christ. Of righteousness. Because 
I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now, what does that mean? It kind of makes me think that the example of righteousness that we're supposed to be looking to is not man, but Jesus Christ. And since Jesus Christ isn't here in the flesh anymore, notice the Holy Spirit's not getting you to look to the soul winner, but he's, pointing, he's still pointing you to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does that, points people to Jesus Christ because he is the source of righteousness. You know, another person, they could achieve the righteousness of any of us, but that's no accomplishment right there. The righteousness that we need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and none of us can achieve that. We have no, there's no chance of that. So to try to use this verse to prove that you've got to make somebody feel bad enough about their sin, they're willing to turn their life around into whatever level they decide it is, is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. This passage proves, and the Holy Spirit proves, that we need Christ's righteousness. And the only way we get that is through faith. So again, keeping things vague. Holding the carrot on a stick, just making you follow after it, it's absolutely ridiculous. So when it comes to salvation, we've got to understand Jesus did the work. Now, do you believe that? That's what it is. And if someone convinces me they believe the gospel, I'm not going to doubt their salvation or try to cast doubt on it. Not, I'm not going to do that. Now, the next, thing, so the next thing the article says, much of the debate over easy believism is unnecessary and is based on a misunderstanding of the scriptures. The Bible is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The essence of this doctrine is found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we see that faith given as a gift by God is what saves us. Now, how many just from that statement right there found out what's wrong with this guy? What, what did he say? What, 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 what label can we put on him now? Calvinist, right? And so, because he, he said, he reads Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and says, faith is the gift of God, not salvation, not eternal life. I had a Calvinist tell me that one time about, it shocked me. I wasn't expecting that. He told me, because he, he's like, show me a place in the Bible where it's, you know, faith only. And I went to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, no. He's like, Etern, it, it's, eternal life's not the gift. Faith is the gift. Uh, I, I said, I don't even know what to say to that. I, I, I really, and I'm going to prove to you that's not the case. But let's keep reading. So it says, but the uh, next verse tells of the results of that salvation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Rather than being saved by some easy act of our own wills, we are saved by the hand of God Almighty, but his will and for his use. We are his servants, and from the moment of salvation, by faith, we embark on a journey of a preordained good works that are the evidence of that salvation. If there is no evidence of growth and good works, we have reason to doubt that salvation ever truly took place. Faith without works is dead, James 2.20, and a dead faith is not a saving faith. So, again, we see the source of his error, that is Calvinism. Now, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, where it says... Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Okay, Right after that, what did Paul say? He said we got to constantly affirm that we maintain good works. For these are good and profitable to men. Why do we have to keep telling you that? Why do I have to get up and keep preaching about doing good works? Because y'all need to be reminded, otherwise you won't do it. Now, these people think you'll just do it. Because you're saved. I don't, I don't know who they're pastoring 
Okay, but I know who I'm pastoring, and you all need reminders. Okay, and I and I know who's pastoring this church, and I need reminders. I'm not just going to naturally do these things. It's not going to happen. So this is absolutely ridiculous. So again, you know, look at Ephesians two eight nine. Is faith the gift, or is eternal life the gift? All right, now a simple reading makes it pretty clear that salvation is a gift because he's telling us how we're saved, and it's not about you. It's a gift, okay? And we use this passage everywhere to prove that salvation is a gift, okay? They use it to prove that faith is a gift. But let's just say for the sake of argument that it's just not clear, all right? Well, you could look at it, and it's kind of hard to tell. Maybe he's talking about faith. Maybe he's talking about salvation. I don't know. But let's go to another passage where it's really clear, okay? In Romans 5.14, says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Okay? So verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So is he talking about faith here, or is he talking about something else? Well, here's the thing we've got to remember. In Romans 6, 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, not faith. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let me ask you, what did we get from Adam? Death. What do we get from Christ? Eternal life. So, verse 15, but not, not as the offense, so also as a free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not that it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what salvation is. It's eternal life. It's salvation from death. That's what we're saved from. Not just our sin, we're saved from the penalty of our sin, which is death. We got saved from that. So when you're saved, you have eternal life. And you get saved by faith, not of works. Eternal life is the gift. Salvation is the gift. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's what we got from Adam. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, the gift is eternal life. The gift is eternal life. The gift is not faith. We receive that gift by faith. But faith is not the gift. And that, folks, is very, that is a very important doctrine for Calvinists. And their main verse they use to prove faith is a gift is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So you can see just how weak their doctrine is. If you're, if you're depending on that fact and that's the verse you're going to use, uh, boy, you better hope your people don't read Romans chapter 5. Otherwise, they're going to think eternal life is the gift. And, th and they would be right. So the next part of the article says, Faith alone does not mean that some believers follow Christ in a life of discipleship, while others do not. The concept of the carnal Christian 
as a separate category of non-spiritual believer is completely unscriptural. Now, folks, I don't have time to go to Romans chapter 7, all right? I'm already going late. The Apostle Paul said, I am carnal, sold under sin. The things that I would, I do not. The things I wouldn't, that what I do. You all know that passage, all right? If you don't believe it, go read Romans 7. Uh, Paul will preach it better than I would. But Paul tells us the total opposite. They say there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Paul said, I am carnal. I'm pretty convinced Paul was saved, okay? I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced. And this is, folks, this is why we've got to use Bible terminology the way the Bible uses it. So it's so important. They, they, these people aren't doing that. So the, the, they say here, the idea of the carnal Christian says that a person may receive Christ as Savior during a religious experience, but never manifest evidence of a changed life. And again, they need to define this changed life for me. Okay, now here's where they're going to go. I'll tell you what scripture they'll go to. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But then they fail to talk about what became new. And what became new is our trespasses are not imputed to us. Now, what are you doing with trespasses when all things became new? No, that's not teaching you don't sin anymore, folks. It's teaching that your trespasses aren't imputed to you. That's what's new. It's talking about that new man, who, who that spiritual man, who is not held accountable to, for those things, or they're not. He's not credited for those sins. And uh, I, I preached a lot on that. So they'll say this is. They said this is a false and dangerous teaching in that it excuses various ungodly lifestyles. A man may be an unrepentant adulterer, liar, or thief, but he's saved because he prayed a prayer as a child, and he's just a carnal Christian. Folks, how does this excuse various ungodly lifestyles? Doesn't the Bible say, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son of me receiveth? So, Pastor Tommy, I don't like how you're raising your kids. Uh, you justify and allow your children to talk back and to disobey. Um, how do I do that? You don't kill them. Okay. Because I do spank them. Okay? You know, there is judgment. There is punishment. But because I don't go as far as you think I should, you think I'm giving them a free pass. And so just because God doesn't throw us into hell and instead deals with us as children, you want to call that an excuse? That would be like me saying, how dare that policeman allow you to speed because all he did was give you a $75 ticket. That wasn't him giving you permission. That wasn't you paying for permission to speed. That's the penalty. And it's supposed to deter you from that. But some people, they, their only deterrent is getting a bullet in their head, I guess. They think the cops should shoot them dead right there. Right? I think that's a little excessive. But at the same time, it's like some, if we were to use your reasoning, then that's how we would apply these things. No, we don't justify sinful lifestyles here. That's why we preach against these things. So just because we teach eternal security, apparently the only judgment that they feel any sinner should ever get is eternity in hell. No, because we're all going to sin. So... Uh, you know, the Bible, so you get, why, why would God punish us if we never do anything wrong? And so they'll admit that a Christian could mess up, but you see how everything being said here, it's opposite of what the Bible actually says. Everything they're saying here, there's direct quotes in the Bible that say the opposite. They are setting themselves up as the authority of who is saved and what you must do to be saved. So he goes on to say, 
The Bible nowhere supports the idea that a true Christian can remain carnal for an entire lifetime. So, how much time do they have? Who determines that? Them or God? Okay. Okay. And you know what? They can't show you where somebody crosses the line, and then they get mad when we talk about somebody crossing the line in the reprobate doctrine. Isn't that interesting? How about this verse? For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Sounds like some saved people died in their sins. So do we conclude that they're not saved? They died in their sins. Well, that wouldn't happen to a saved person. The Bible never refers to unsaved people who are dead as being asleep. That's what it says for saved people. And these people who are making a mockery out of the Lord's Supper, Paul said are dead because of that. So these people died in their sins. So you can't show me Bible to prove these statements that you're saying. In fact, I can show Bible that proves the direct opposite. So absolutely ridiculous. So they say, rather, God's word presents only two categories of people, Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, those who have bound to the lordship of Christ and those who have not. And notice that phrase, bowed to the lordship of Christ. And I preached on this a while back on the lordship of Christ. When a person admits their guilt, they're admitting Jesus is Lord. When they're, when they're going to him as the Savior, they're admitting he can throw me into hell. He's the only one to get me out. They're doing things as he said. But this attitude of a life of servitude and discipleship, how is that not works? It says, while the security of salvation is a biblical fact based on the finished work of salvation by Christ, it is certainly true that some of those who seem to have made a decision or accepted Christ may not genuinely be saved. As noted before, true salvation is not so much our accepting Christ as it is Him accepting us. Well, that sounds pretty good. But I seem to remember a verse, Him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out. So why would we not get accepted? If somebody went to Christ, why would He not accept you? You know, you know how, how, and what they think is, if, well, he's not going to accept you. If he's not convinced, you're willing to like live a life of servitude. I, was, I thought he came to save sinners, and that's what I am. And he says, we're saved by the power of God for the purpose of God, and that purpose includes the works that give evidence of our conversion. Those who continue to walk according to the flesh are not believers. And that is why Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. The carnal Christian who examines himself will soon see that he or she is not in the faith. I don't have time to go to Galatians 5, 16 through 27, where he says the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then he commands them to walk in the spirit. He's showing those things. It's not the it's not the it's not what manifests whether or not you're saved or unsaved. It's what manifests whether or not you're in the will of God. And if you'll and then Paul says, if we walk in the flesh, we will fulfill the desires of the flesh. He's talking to saved people there. Galatians 5, 16 through 27 blows that out. Uh, it just destroys that. He, um, and he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That tells me we still can, folks, if you walk in the flesh. So James 2, 19 says, You believe that there is one God. You do well, even the de- demons believe and tremble. The type of belief demons have can be compared to the intellectual assent made by those who believe in Jesus and the fact that he exists and that he was a good person. Many unbelievers say, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus. Others say, I prayed a prayer, and a preacher said I was saved. But such prayers and such belief do not necessarily signal a change of heart. The problem is a misunderstanding of the word belief. With true salvation comes genuine repentance and a real life change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. 
It is possible that the new person Christ creates is one who continues to walk the carnality of the flesh. No. Then how are my trespasses not imputed unto me if I never walk in the flesh? Because if I'm always walking in the Spirit, against such there is no law. I can have no trespasses. But you can. They're, they're taking that out of context. And according to this reasoning, reasoning you'd have to believe sin is perfection. Free salvation is our only hope of eternal life and the only way for us to show our love for God while on this earth. And then, folks, this is, in, this is the article. I'm not making this up. This is what they said. Salvation is certainly free, but at the same time, it costs us everything. Then it's not free. All right. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even know what to say about that. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. It's not the same. You know what? Fine. I'll give you my car for free. But it's going to cost you everything at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. Okay? That, that's not going to work. You can have my car, but you're my servant now. I get 10% of your income for the rest of your life. Hey, I gave you a free gift. You know, you got to come work for me whenever I need you. You know, whatever I call you to do, you better be willing to do it. You better be willing to lay down your life for me. I don't really feel like it. I gave you a free gift. You better do it. Listen, we are, we are to die to ourselves as we change the likeness of Christ. Where easy believism fails is its lack of recognition that a person with faith in Jesus will lead a progressively changed life. Salvation is a free gift from God to those who believe, but discipleship and obedience are the response that will no doubt occur when one truly comes to Christ in faith. So, folks, this teaching, it causes us to keep our eyes on ourselves instead of Christ. Okay? He is the source of our salvation. He's proof. So what this person's teaching makes it so you can never really know for sure you're saved. You're always going to have failures. There will always be other Christians who behave better than you. Who would, And then they would be able to cast doubt on your salvation. You're not like me. I turned from that sin when I got saved. Why didn't you? We'll never, we'll never have any hope. And there's a lot more I could say on this, but folks, um, I like the term easy believism. And just because there's a few goofballs out there that maybe take some things too far, I think it makes, I think it's real close, you know, it makes perfect sense. I think it does send a good message. And it separates us from people like gotquestions.org and whoever wrote that. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help and a blessing to everyone. Lord, we thank you for uh, the simple plan of salvation. We thank you for doing it all for us. And I pray you'll uh, help us to be diligent and going out and telling people, Lord, and I pray that nobody in here will allow uh, these characters out there speaking against easy believism to discourage them from spreading the gospel, that uh, they'll remain faithful in that. And I pray you'll help us to be good examples at the same time. In your name we pray. Amen.